What is the? What do you want me to say? You have found Chameleon, season three, Wild Boys. A production of Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> a heads up: this show contains discussions of an eating disorder. If you or someone you know is struggling with eating disorders, please listen with care. The story of the Bush boys who weren't lives in the collective Vernon memory in a very specific way. Two boys showed up in Vernon who no one had ever seen before. These two wild children appear in our community. So thin and ghostly, yeah, gaunt. They had rags on their back. And they don't have a home. They told us a fantastical story. They were born and raised in the bush. Had apparently never seen a telephone. They'd never been to school. They'd never been to dentists, nothing. It was like finding the lost tribe in New Guinea. The good people of Vernon rallied around the boys. I kind of made it a mission to see if I could help them. To uh, try and lend a hand. We gave them food, clothing, and shelter because of the story they told us. And then we found out on national television, the story was a lie. I found out while I was on camera. They made it all up. None of it is true. Oh my God, I can't believe this. It's me, you can't, you can't not let me Just in. Wait. Where are they? We felt taken advantage of and humiliated. All these funds and time and effort had been expended on them from people in the community. It just was like devastating. But they felt no apparent remorse. No apologies, like he was never, never sorry for anything that happened. I don't think he's wrong. He just struck me as so ungrateful. And finally, they left town. He walked up the gangway into the plane, never even looked back. Yeah, and it was gone. Good riddance. That's the Vernon version of the story. The one that was seared into my teenage brain 18 years ago. But last fall, I started wondering, what is the boys' version of that story? Is there something they could tell me that would make this whole bizarre series of events make sense? And I was curious to find out, given who the boys were and what they did, nearly 20 years later, who have they become? So last fall, I did something I swore I would never do again. I went on Facebook and I searched for Rowan Horn. He came up immediately. So I opened a message and I started typing. Hi Rowan, my name is Sam Mullins. We've never met, but 17 years ago, in 2003, we were in the same place at the same time. I told him that I hadn't been able to stop thinking about the story and wondered, would he be willing to talk with me? I hit send and I waited. Like Tammy when she left those quarters at Cal store with a note asking the boys to call her, I expected nothing. I set it aside. But a week later, in my inbox. Hello, Sam. What a great idea. Let's do it. Rowan Horn. And just a few days after that. Um, here, I'm just trying to hit record here, if that's cool. Sure, yeah. Do you want to just jump in? I'd love to know more about you, too. Anything you want to share about yourself? Oh, yeah. So, um, so I'm just like a Vernon kid. I was like a hockey player. And uh, when I was like a around the time that you were there, I was kind of like getting tired with the whole athletic thing. So, From Campside Media, this is Chameleon, Wild Boys, Part 6, Rowan. 
There's just so many interesting twists and turns all over this story. And uh, that's why I'm so excited to talk to you. It really is. Uh, it was a crazy story. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. As I interviewed the horns, I was looking for clues. What turned two boys from the California suburbs into the infamous Bush Boys of British Columbia? At first, I just kind of tiptoed in, like, so what was your childhood like, Rowan? I had, like, the best childhood. I so, so, I can't even tell people. Like, I feel uh, almost guilty for having such a good childhood compared to other people's. I talked to their older brother, too. We're going to call him Gabriel. Were either of them getting into trouble at all as, like, as kids? No. Quite the opposite. Never got in trouble. Not a rebellious streak in any of us. All my kids have been really good kids. The boy's mom, Diana. I haven't had trouble with, you know, oh no, we got the drugs going on, or the sassing back and cussing at mom going on. All my kids were really good. But as Rowan grew up, there was a moment when it seemed like he started to change. How would you describe Rowan as, like, as a kid? Normal five-year-old, normal 10-year-old, not normal 15-year-old. Rowan, after, like, when he somewhere in high school, just seemed a little less, you know, more off the beaten path than most. I don't know what changed. What changed, it appears, by Rowan's account, and by his mom's too, was the change that happens to all of us around that age. The capital C change. Puberty. Where it all started for me was like my acne. I got really bad acne as a teenager. It was just like destroying my, my confidence when you, you know, trying to have a social conversation with someone and there's just pimples all over your face. Oh, people yeah. Look ugly oh, about, yeah. You know, and if you like really feel when their eyes shift suddenly, you're like, oh, they just look. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah. it hurt my self-esteem, my confidence. Hmm. And I was wanting to find some way to like cure my acne. And when I heard this, I thought, wait, aren't there prescription drugs for teenagers who really don't want acne? Yeah, Accutane and everything right. like that. I never wanted to take anything like that. And this is where the story turns. Teenage boys famously don't care what they put in their bodies. But for this teenage boy, putting prescribed drugs into his body wasn't even a consideration. To understand why that was, you need to know about his parents and the house he grew up in. The Horns are a family with strong beliefs. Which isn't to say that their beliefs were set in stone. They explored a lot of ideas. But once they locked into one, they locked in hard. And two things they seemed to have the strongest beliefs about were health and spirituality. 
They were all runners, led by Roger, who'd bring his kids along to run 5Ks with him. And Diana would always be searching her magazines for the perfect diet, a pastime that would be absorbed by some of her children. Rowan and Kyle's sister went on to become a dietitian, and it was spirituality that got their parents together in the first place, Diana and Roger. Diana had grown up a devout Mormon, the fourth of seven kids. And then each and every one of us, all seven children, converted from Mormonism to Christianity because we became convinced we were in a cult. And Diana didn't just convert to Christianity and leave it at that. She moved to Utah, to the very heart of the Mormon church, to become a missionary against the missionariest church in the world, to try to talk Mormons out of being Mormon, which is where she met another non-Mormon missionary, Roger. I really respected his spiritual grounding, who's very much that way, and very humble and a good sense of humor and let me win ping pong and very athletic. Diana was way into Roger right away. She told herself after meeting him the first time, I want to marry somebody just like him. (laughs) In my interview with Diana, as she talks about Roger, he smirks, half listening, doing a Sudoku beside her on the couch. A year after they met, they got married. Roger worked at an insurance company. Diana stayed home. She'd always wanted to be a mom. And a few years later, she was. They had their first three kids, boy, boy, girl, within a few years of each other. Then there was a five-year gap. And then Rowan came along. Rowan was very much the baby of the family. You had the three older ones and Rowan was younger. And they all adored having this, you know, new young addition to our family. Little little cute sweetie pie. As the kids grew up, Diana and Roger had started out parenting with a clear list of rules and consequences to save themselves from improvisational moments of discipline. Something like, you talk back, you get six minutes time out. You pinch your brother, that's two and a half spankings. And by the time um, Rowan rolled along, I just, it, it became a little bit more relaxed. Oh, yeah. Rowan experienced completely different parents than I did. Gabriel again, the oldest of the Horn kids. Or more directive or less directive? Less directive. Less more directive, lackadaisical. Hey, let the, let the kids, you know, make their own choices, right? Do whatever right. they want to do, right? Um, come to their own conclusions about literally everything in the world. Diana and Roger cared deeply about Jesus and the Bible. Diana remembers all four of her children were baptized in a swimming pool in the same afternoon. But when it came to which church they belonged to, to borrow a sports term, they were unrestricted free agents. When I first became a Christian, it was just a regular conservative Christian church. Then we ended up uh, at a charismatic church. We tried Baptist churches. Oh, I I think I dabbled with the Seventh-day Adventists. We we even spent a little time with um, Jehovah's Witnesses. They had less allegiance to one specific way and more to the idea of questioning, doubting, seeking. Our whole family, I liked that we would talk about things like philosophy. We wouldn't shy away from the big questions of life. We'd always be talking about some spiritual thing. And yeah, I like that. And when Rowan says the big questions of life, he's not just talking about where did we come from? Why are we here? Is there a God? He's also talking about everything from reptilians to, I mean, just every 
chemtrails to every conspiracy theory there is. Aliens, Bigfoot. Conspiracy theories were a thing they talked about at the kitchen table and around the house. Oh yeah, we were a big conspiracy family. Or rather, mostly four people in the family were into the conspiracies. Roger, Diana, Rowan, and Kyle. And the four of them are into conspiracies the same way other families might be into frisbee golf or musical theater. Oh yeah, the whole NASA thing, you know, like, have we really been to the moon? You know, that's another thing that interests us. And definitely um, UFOs. They asked me if I've gotten the COVID vaccine. I have. The sick You've been people vaccinated? Oh. The horns are team anti-vax. What else? 9-11. Oh, 9-11. That was a really big one. Even more so than chemtrails. Um, Bigfoot? What else? My parents are convinced of the flat earth. I'm not. Rowan's dad clarifies. Not fully convinced. Flat earth. I'm probably 80% there. Well, I don't want to dive into it right away just because they make some convincing arguments. I better withhold judgment. You know, make sure I've heard all the sides. But they do have some convincing arguments. There's actually a, a flat earth pizza place here. <laughs> place That's actually goes. a really good idea for a pizza place. That part is true. Their beliefs cover the whole spectrum. Roger and Diana are interested in UFO and Bigfoot stuff. They attended a Y2K convention. But they also believe darker things like thinking incorrectly that 9-11 was an inside job and that the astronauts who died in the Challenger explosion are still alive. And so, yes, Rowan did grow up in a family that was looking for, you know, the more extreme truth that you're not going to hear from mainstream because mainstream might be hiding stuff from you. I don't trust what's standard, the mainstream thing. And I'm always looking for the alternative Right. Because I don't trust the mainstream. This all started to turn from philosophies Rowan believed to things he actually would carry out one Thanksgiving day when he was nine. If the acne was Rowan's turning point, that Thanksgiving was the starting point. That whole thing was trauma. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of, like, freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death! Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. That Thanksgiving, Diana was cooking in the kitchen, and nine-year-old Rowan was riding his bike in the parking lot of the apartment complex where they lived. Yeah, I was riding over a speed bump too slowly, and it kind of got wobbly, and it, and it fell over, and then... Handlebars into his gut. And uh, 
I hobble back to my house. And he comes in and I crash on my bike. I don't feel good. And I just sprawled out on the sofa in pain, like crying is horrible. Like I felt like I was dying inside because I was. And then my aunt said, hey, we should take him to the hospital. We should call an ambulance. So my aunt finally called an ambulance. When they finally got to the hospital, they found out that Rowan had ruptured his spleen. So he had an emergency splenectomy. It was right in the nick of time. When the doctor said, okay, yeah, if it had just been like an hour later, we couldn't have said he would have died. You can live a normal life without a spleen. The other organs in your body sort of pick up the slack to make up for the spleen not doing its thing. But a person without a spleen is more vulnerable to getting sick and can have a tougher time fighting off infections. During his time in the hospital, doctors would swing by to tell Rowan about how his life and body would be a little bit different post-splenectomy. And I was told that you're going to have a compromised immune system. They're like, oh, if you get some pneumonia now, that could kill you. Like right. other people it wouldn't kill, but now if you get pneumonia, you could die. This information sat extremely heavy in Rowan's nine-year-old mind. I just came within an hour of dying, he thought. And now I'm compromised? I fell weird on my bike? So now I'm more susceptible to illness or infection for the rest of my life? And so I had that in my mind. It was then became programmed into me to think, okay, I better be extra healthy. Right. I have this compromised immune system now. The doctors told him, don't worry too much. We can prescribe you stuff to help your immune system. They were going to give me some pneumonia shots every so often. But where most nine-year-olds had been raised to see doctors as experts with answers. We, we're very skeptical of the doctors and any conventional treatments. Because the conspiracy movement, it does have a good mix with the health movement. And, and we were always listening to those conspiracy radio, and they'd always be right. saying, no, we should, uh, there's better ways. So that's the great thing. You, you could be watching Alex Jones about some conspiracy, but then now they're talking about some health topic. When Rowan comes to a fork in the path, he tends not to think, should I go left or should I go right? He thinks, who made this fork? I don't trust forks. And I decided instead of continue on the vaccines for the immune system, whatever, I decided I was just going to um, just eat really healthy and right. just be the healthiest person ever. And, I'll, and I figure well, maybe my body will figure it out if I'm healthy enough. It can be devastating to have life tell you that your body's not invincible. But Rowan took this news in and said, nope, not if I can help it. He became obsessed with finding a way to tilt the odds back in his favor. And this is where the one thing that everyone in Vernon knew about Rowan, that he was obsessed with his diet, this is where that began. It was me trying to like treat my anxiety around my own fear of death. Like me, my fear of dying from some sickness, me ha having control over my diet and right. fixing it was probably me trying to like comfort myself and like, I do have control. I'm not gonna die. I, if I'm healthy enough, I can control whether I get sick or not. Rowan started taking a very strong interest in what he put in his body. And he started being a pest about the food that his mom was making. He'd roll up in the kitchen and be like, Okay, mommy, I want to be really healthy. Be sure you cook healthy dinners. No, I won't eat that jarred spaghetti sauce. Look at it, it has that ingredients. Okay, I'll make homemade spaghetti sauce. <gasps> Did you put salt in it? I can't eat that. You put salt in it. And I'm like, 
boy, is this kid a fanatic. But Diana and Rowan were close. And Rowan was the baby, so she'd make the Rowan-specific spaghetti sauce and whatever else he wanted. Rowan started bringing home things that he'd read about. Supplements and hyper-specific health foods. His brother Gabriel would open the fridge for a snack, and there'd be strange jars and bottles, and be like, must be for Rowan. Yeah, he would have ideas, and so certain products would show up, some kind of special butter, jars mailed to us of, like, grass powder from somewhere. How things escalated from weird supplements and demanding artisanally crafted spaghetti sauce to suddenly this kid who'd never been in trouble before, running away and cutting off all communication with the family he clearly loved. To understand how that happened, we have to go back to where we began, the acne. I think the acne was around like 12, 13, 14. Yeah, I just started to really get bad acne. And I remember making me really, maybe really insecure. And just thinking, yeah, just thinking, man, this is horrible. Looking in the mirror, just, ugh. I'm like, this is awful. I look horrible. Right. Pimples yeah. everywhere. We would, like, try maybe rubbing alcohol and maybe a little hydrogen peroxide and a little of this and a little of that to see what we could do about it. Before you know it, his, his face was, like, red and raw. And, boy, we just, it was terrible. And nothing really helped that much. So he starts thinking about the super healthy diet he'd been sticking to since losing his spleen. It seemed to have worked. So far, none of the doctor's predictions had come true. He thinks, well, I've managed to not get sick once in years. Surely I can cure teenage acne. So Rowan turns, once again, not to doctors, but to the internet. But it's not the internet we know today. Like, if you think it's hard to find sound information online now, just try to remember the chaos of the Napster, Ask Jeeves, GeoCities internet of the early 2000s. You'd be better off looking for answers scrawled on a public toilet seat or spray-painted on an overpass. And then I started researching online how to cure acne myself, and then the people said, oh, it's all diet. It's all toxins in your diet. Oh, you're not clean enough inside. Oh, you need to have a cleaner diet. And all these people saying it's all diet related further made me obsessed about diet because then it wasn't just about my immune system. Now I had two reasons. Now it was vanity and my insecurity for my acne. I wanted to fix that, but then it was also my immune system. He's now doubling down the rabbit hole when he stumbles on a word that he'd never heard before. And they were just saying, oh, fruitarianism. Be a fruitarian, your acne will go away, you'll be the healthiest person ever. Fruitarianism is exactly what it sounds like. Fruit and nothing but the fruit, so help you God. Steve Jobs was a famous practitioner of fruitarianism. And one time, when Ashton Kutcher was dabbling in method acting, he was cast as Jobs in a film. So he ate a mostly fruit-based diet leading up to shooting. But he ended up in the hospital with a diet caused pancreatitis. It's not a balanced diet is the thing. But Rowan is fixated on this idea. And he was lured in part by the one thing both conspiracy and mainstream-minded teens can agree on. Models. Uh, There was a model who ran a popular forum. And she said, she had horrible acne. She said when she was a fruitarian, all her acne went away. Rowan was in. Since losing his spleen, his family had gotten used to Rowan blossoming into a food zealot. 
but this started to feel less like a diet and more like a religion. Did he tell you why he went to fruitarian? It, it, was, it wasn't just health. It was to save the life of the plant. Did you know that? He didn't even allow himself to eat anything with a root. The, the rule was a fruitarian shouldn't eat a root because that's not a fruit because it's right, killing right. the plant. Right. So it extends the morality of caring about animals. It extends it to plants. It's right. Like, well, let's care, well, let's care about plants, too. Why, why are you going to kill the carrot? What if it's alive? Right. You know? right. Why are you going to kill the onion? There's the, the life of the onion matters. <laughs> it was like going from casual Catholicism to Opus Dei. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. Rowan's health obsession started to veer into hypochondria. He stopped wanting to leave the house, hung out with friends less, and it got to the point that he didn't even want to go to school anymore. Rowan wasn't the most social animal to begin with, so this alarmed his mom. So he was afraid to go to school, and I said... Okay, this is ridiculous. So we went to the doctor and I said, can you give him a clean bill of health or or convince him that it's safe to go to school? School was the one place where he would mingle with peers in real life. So the doctor examines Rowan and he says he seems to be in good health generally. But then Diana says something, just kind of in passing, an offhand remark that would have unintended consequences. She had to say something. Rowan had always been lean, but the combination of his new diet and a sudden growth spurt had made him concerningly thin. Where if you're too thin, your elbows look a little too pronounced and your knees look too pronounced. And I was noticing that on him. But she couldn't convince Rowan of this. So she turned to the doctor for validation. And by the way, don't you think he's too thin? The doctor does a quick body mass index evaluation. And they said, you know what, he is. So Diana tells the doctor about what's been going on with her son's limited diet, how he flat out refuses to eat anything that he doesn't consider to be healthy. And the the doctor said, really? Well, let's take him to a psychologist and get this figured out. Without fully realizing it, Diana has just done the one thing that the horns fear most. She's gotten her son involved with the system. It starts with the psychologist their family doctor referred them to. When Rowan meets with the shrink, he, as always, is more than willing to divulge every detail about his dietary beliefs. After which, the psychologist sits down with Diana and tells her he's extremely alarmed. He says, Oh yeah, he's, he's, he's killing himself. And he said, do you realize your son is mentally ill? I never agreed with the doctor that he was mentally ill. I just thought he was a fanatic. Nonetheless, she was worried. So when the shrink says, your son needs to get treatment for anorexia, she sent him to an outpatient program. The problem was anorexia was not the right box to put Rowan in. He was never against eating food. Food was his favorite thing. Every time one of his siblings would come into the kitchen, there would be Rowan. Rowan was eating a lot, right, all the time. It was almost like he was always getting some salad together or always working on some food thing. And so it would have been nonsensical to tell him to eat because he was always in the process of doing something for food. So Rowan goes into this program that's not at all designed to solve his actual problem. They started to think, yeah, I have anorexia. They had this idea that I had anorexia when really 
Right. I had orthorexia, which is the fear of unhealthy food. And they made the mistake of trying to get him into an anorexic program when he had a completely different condition. An eating disorder specialist we spoke with, Ariel Maharaj, said this misdiagnosis didn't surprise him, that orthorexia is much less common, so people often mistake it for anorexia. It's not even included in the DSM, the manual used to diagnose mental illnesses today. Orthorexia sometimes presents like anorexia. Both restrict food in a way. But an orthorexic is less concerned with the amount of food and more concerned with the purity of the food. It's a very black and white belief that some food is good and makes you healthy, and some is bad and will literally kill you. Oh, you're not clean enough inside. Oh, you need to have a cleaner diet. This fed right into his orthorexia. The specialist told us that part of the drive toward orthorexia is the desire to control the uncontrollable. That if you just eat perfectly enough, you can avoid and defeat the scariest things in life. Sickness. Death. Which is also what often attracts people to conspiracy theories. Feeling like you have an explanation for the inexplicable can feel like a sort of control. When Rowan started attending the anorexia outpatient program, he refused to eat their food. Not because he didn't like food, but because he didn't like their food. To him, their impure, processed hospital food. But they missed that distinction, so the group kicked him out. And then I'm like, oh great, now what will we do? Then the doctors are like, let's just try putting him in a mental hospital. But the problem with a mental hospital would be the same for Rowan. Rowan would flat out refuse to eat hospital food. And they're like, you know, that's okay if he doesn't eat our food. We'll just let him lose weight until he gets to the point where we can, like, tube him. Intubate him. Force feed him. And I'm like, gee, this doesn't really sound like the best avenue for my son that I'm not even convinced is mentally ill. Diana could start to feel the tendrils of the system take hold of Rowan. She wanted to just detangle it all, to just take her boy home, go back to the drawing board as a family. But it was too late. They're like, okay, if you don't agree to this, we are going to call the Child Protective Service. And I said, well, okay, if that's what you're going to do, I'd rather discuss this with the Child Protective Service because they're interested in the well-being of the child. Maybe when we all talk about this, they'll also agree there must be a better approach to this than the mental hospital and the tubing. Diana says she was fully complying with the authorities, checking in with doctors, bringing him to appointments. But the system wrestled control away from her. According to Diana, they said, put him in the mental hospital or we're going to take him away. All this time, Diana had been afraid for Rowan, and now he was too. But Rowan was afraid not for his health. He was afraid that he was about to lose his freedom. I'm just afraid of authority in general. Mm -hmm. I'm just a fearful person. I'm afraid of the government. I'm afraid of cops. I'm afraid of anything. Anyone who has power makes me afraid. Ever since Rowan heard the words mental hospital, he couldn't shake this growing sense of dread. It brought up a very specific image in his mind. It's like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, sure. one of my favorite movies. Yeah. And I've always 
not liked the um, psychiatric industry, anything that like forces people to do things against their will. It's just, it's always been a nightmare to me. Knowing now the conspiracy diet that he'd been absorbing his whole youth, conspiracies whose staple was, the system is out to get you, guard your freedom at all costs. What happened next now feels to me almost inevitable. If you grow up believing that your own government was responsible for 9-11 and lied to you about the moon landing, vaccines, school shootings, why would you turn yourself over to those authorities? Rowan was now keeping one eye on the door, waiting for the knock that meant the authorities were coming for him, determined that if they did, he wouldn't be there. I was like ready, like, uh, let's drop the hat to go. I, I yeah. thought about it ahead of time. Okay, if they're there at the door, I'm going to do something. I had to go somewhere. And then one day, to our great surprise and horror and amazement, a knock on the door. It's the morning. I'm eating oranges, I'm peeling some oranges, you know, in the, in the kitchen as usual. I hear a knock at the door. And here's the Child Protective Service and a police officer. Our kitchen's getting kind of hidden a little bit, so I'm, I'm out of sight, but I'm looking. And say, this is our court order. We, um, we're we allowed to do of like a 40, there's some kind of a 48-hour seizure where they're allowed to take someone who may or may not be mentally ill in order to diagnose them for their own safety. I might even heard the name Rowan or whatever, and then, and then I really freak out. And we also have this thing where we're taking you to court for custody. And I'm like, really? This is just over the top because I was willing to cooperate. I just wanted to know if the Child Protective Service thought this was the best thing for him. And here you've like come against me. Oh my gosh, I think, oh gosh, I gotta go immediately. So just immediately I drop everything I'm doing. He's like, they're gonna put me in a mental hospital and they're gonna try to take custody away from my parents. So there's a sliding back door in the kitchen. I try to open the sliding glass door as quietly as I can. And then I just bolt. Eventually, they would have gotten around to saying, well, I don't care what you say, ma'am, we're gonna go get him. But by, by then, he was gone. Rowan runs across the lawn and hurdles his frame over the fence. I'm just running and I'm, and I turn, make a turn and I hop another fence. He's not sure if they saw him. And there's bushes and I'm just thinking I gotta hide around here for a while in case they start driving their cop car around. Now I'm now on the alert, wondering what they saw. Make, I don't even, cause I didn't even bother looking behind me cause I was too afraid. For all I know they would, were following me. In Rowan's 16 year old orthorexic mind, he genuinely thinks that his life is in danger. He thinks that if he's caught, they'll force him to eat poison and he'll die. He is running for his life. Rowan hunkers down in a bush. Once he was reasonably sure that no one saw him, he tried to get comfortable. He figured he'd have to stay here for a few hours, at least until it got dark. He knew what he'd do then. He'd go and tap on the window of the only person in the world he knew would understand the danger he was in. The one person he trusted with his life. Cut 
Chameleon is a production of Campside Media with Sony Music. Wild Boys was reported and written by me, Sam Mullins. It's produced by Abukara Don, and our editor is Karen Duffin. Our senior producer is Ashley Ann Krigbaum. Sound design and mixing by Hannes Brown and Garrett Tiedemann. Original music by Hannes Brown, Garrett Tiedemann, Epidemic Sound, and Blue Dot Sessions. Our fact checker is Alex Yablon. Special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Josh Dean, and Adam Hoff. If you or someone you know is struggling with your relationship with food, please know you're not alone. There are free, confidential helplines with people just waiting to help. In the U.S., you can call or text the National Eating Disorder Association at 1-800-931-2237. That's 1-800-931-2237. In Canada, the National Eating Disorder Information Center hotline is 1-866-633-4220. That's 1-866-633-4220. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Don't want to wait until next week for the next episode of Chameleon? You don't have to. Subscribe to Chameleon Uninterrupted on Apple Podcasts to listen to the next episode right now. You'll get early access to new episodes every week completely ad-free. Plus, you'll unlock episodes of our exclusive bonus series, Art of the Con. Just visit the Chameleon Show page on Apple Podcasts to start your free trial today.